In your Bible, the book of Psalms, Psalm number eight, please. Psalm number eight in your Bible. And when you find it, if you'll stand with me, we will read from God's word together. Psalm number eight. Psalm chapter eight, and we will read verse one and read with me from God's word. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Who has set thy glory above the heavens? Verse three, when I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, Question, what is man that thou art mindful of him? We are so insignificant when we think of ourselves compared against the whole physical universe. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him. And then if you would go over to chapter 18 of the book of Psalms, and there's a verse there that ties in so Beautifully with this, Psalm 18 and verse 30. As for God, his way is perfect. Boy, isn't that a great phrase there? As for God, his way is perfect. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. As for God, his way is perfect. When I consider the heavens and the stars and the universe, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Beautiful passages like that that touch my heart and my mind as I read them. And they let me know that God has a plan for everything in this universe. I want you to repeat that phrase with me right now because I want everybody to get a hold of it. God has a plan for everything in this universe. Okay, everybody together. God has a plan for everything in this universe. And in the book of Job, for example, chapter 37, in verse 14, Job said, stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. How wonderful Almighty God is. God has a plan for everything in the universe. A very famous astronomer from England, his name was Sir James Jeans. He's deceased now. But he's well known at that time for being a scholar on the heavens. He said, quote, the universe appears to have been designed by a pure mathematician that everything about the universe fits together in a very logical, planned way because God has a plan for everything in the universe. In the book of Romans chapter 11, Paul talks about that. And there are numerous places throughout the scripture that lets me know that God has a perfect plan for everything. And so this morning, that's the title of my message to you, God's Perfect Plan. I want you to listen. I'm going to read a lot of material to you that I've obtained from other sources, obviously. I don't know all this, but I've done some research. And it's so fascinating to study how that everything in this universe 
was so wonderfully planned and carried out by our creator God, God's perfect plan. Number one, God has a plan for planet earth. There is a plan for the earth. The earth is tilted at 23 degrees on its axis, which produces our seasons. If the earth were not tilted, we'd have no seasons. Scientists believe that if not tilted exactly as it is, that vapors from the oceans would move up to the North Pole and the South Pole, would pile up continents of ice and undo the stability of it, throw the whole thing off balance. So God has a perfect plan for his universe, for the earth. For example, the distance between the earth and the moon is 200,000 miles approximately. If it were further out, the tides would not be strong enough and the oceans would stagnate. If it were 50,000 miles closer, they tell me that the earth would, that the tides would be so enormous that, they, that twice daily all the continents would be submerged in the oceans. The weight of the earth in tons is estimated to be six to the 21st power. Yet the earth, that is to the 21st power, that means six with tw- uh, 21 zeros after the six tons. That's in- incalculable. We can't even imagine that, can we? And yet the earth with all of that weight is so perfectly balanced, it turns easily on its axis. It revolves daily at the rate of more than 1,000 miles an hour. Now, you and I don't realize that we're moving right now at 1,000 miles an hour as the earth rotates. But it's 25,000 miles in the circumference of the earth. And so if we're moving 1,000 miles an hour, then we're going to go around that circumference one time each day, which is, as you know, what we do. And this adds up to 9 million miles on your speedometer every year. So if you've lived as long as I have, you've got quite a lot of mileage on you by now, don't you? It revolves in its own orbit around the sun in an elliptical circuit of 600 million miles a year. And we're traveling in the orbit around the sun 19 miles per second. While I stopped, we traveled 19 miles. We're going 1,140 miles an hour that way around that big elliptical circuit, and we're going 1,000 miles an hour going this way. You begin to think about it, you get dizzy, don't you? It is quite, quite something the way God has planned it all. I think, why don't we get spun off into space or something? But God has a perfect plan. God has a plan for the sun. The sun is traveling in an orbit around some unknown center in the Milky Way galaxy. According to the University Corporation for Atmospheric Research, the total distance traveled by the sun is 586,920,000 miles each year. The sun is located 92,900,000 miles from the earth. It has a diameter. Now listen to this. The diameter of the sun is 864,000 miles compared to the diameter 
of the earth, which is 8,000 miles, which means you could take 108 earths, 108 planet earths, and put them into the, uh, into the sun. And every square yard of the sun's surface is emitting 130,000 horsepower of energy every day, which, of course, is vital to us. Our sun is a minor star of 100 billion stars or orbs in the Milky Way galaxy. If you took a quarter from your pocket at night and you held the quarter up at arm's length like this, behind the quarter, if your eye could see far enough, you would see 15 million stars anywhere you put the quarter. It is beyond our mind's comprehension all of these statistics. The nearest star is 26 trillion miles away from Earth. The distance it would take for light to travel in four and a third years, meaning four and a third light years from the Earth is our nearest star. To illustrate that distance to that star, if you take a piece of paper for example, you take the little card here that you have, your stewardship card that you have. And if you, allowed, if, you, if you imagine that the distance from the earth to the sun is the thickness of that paper, then to illustrate that, that represents 92,900 miles. If you use that same scale, the distance to the nearest star would be represented by a pile of paper 71 feet high. You just, it's, you begin to see the greatness of God that we don't even think about when we look up at the stars at night. In the book of Isaiah, there's a verse that so touches me when I begin to think along these lines. Would you turn there with me, please? It's the book of Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 26 because God's word speaks to these kinds of statistics and observations frequently throughout it, if you just look at it. In Isaiah chapter 40, now this, this is a fellow writing 700 years before Jesus Christ came into the earth, and yet they had far more knowledge than we think they did, and they had the benefit of inspiration. The Holy Spirit inspired them. And so now in Isaiah chapter number 40 and verse number 26, Isaiah said, lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who hath created these things that bringeth out their host by number? Who could create such a vast amount of stars and planets and orbs and galaxies? He calleth them all by name. Every one of them has a name. God knows who they are, what they are, and where they are. He calls them all by name. Uh, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, and not one of them faileth. God has a plan for all the living creatures. I looked on my computer and did a little study to find out just how many kinds of living things did God create. And the best information I could find was that there are 66 thousand kinds of mammals, birds, reptiles, fish, and amphibians. That doesn't count things like 
crustaceans and, and uh, coral and things like that that you might say are living. But conscious life of living creatures, mammals, birds, reptiles, fish, and amphibians. There's 66,000 different varieties of them. But that's not the largest category of living things. There's over a million insects, insect forms. Over a million insects. Most of them live in South Carolina, (laughs) as you have observed. And every mammal and bird, interestingly, has a gestation period that's a multiple of seven. My, what what a mind must have created this universe. Not must have, did. Canaries hatch in 14 days. Chickens in 21. Ducks and geese in 28. Mallards in 35 days. Parrots and ostriches hatch in 42. Humans hatch in 38 weeks or 266 days. But that too is a multiple of seven. Isn't that interesting? Oh, it just happened. This is all random, right? And have you ever noticed? I know you haven't. An elephant has four legs and they all bend forward in the same direction. How is it that an elephant doesn't fall down? The only answer is God has a perfect plan. A horse gets up by extending his front legs. A cow gets up by extending her back legs. Why? I don't know, but God has a perfect plan, doesn't he? God made each species, each thing, he made them different. He designed them specifically for what they are intended to do. God has a plan for his living creatures. And God has a plan for the plant kingdom. Have you ever thought how a branch can grow out from a tree, the trunk for 40 or 50 feet, and it has nothing to support it underneath it, and sometimes it holds immense weight? Thousands and thousands of pounds. It's an engineering marvel that anything could extend that far. The nearest we could come to that would be the wing on an airplane, but proportionally, we can't go anything like the distance that God can go with a simple tree limb that we see every day. A stalk of bananas alternates between even and odd numbers of bananas on each row. So you have a row of even and a row of uneven and a row of even and a row of uneven. And why is that? God has a plan. Why is it that sometimes that's not true and you have two evens or two, but they tell me that it always is like that. I look myself for this one, I read in this that every orange has an equal number of segments, never an odd number. And after eating about a bag of oranges, I figured that's true. (laughs) I've been looking at my oranges and counting the segments, and so far, that's accurate. Every ear of corn has an even number of rows of kernels on it. And I haven't Check that one out, but so far everything that I've found has been true. But this to me is the most fascinating. A watermelon has an even number of stripes on the rind. It takes 5,000 watermelon seeds to weigh one pound. 
And yet one seed can produce a watermelon that can grow as much as over 50 pounds. The seed, that one seed, has gathered 200,000 times its own weight in water and nutrients through the stem. It takes in that water and nutrients through that same stem and then somehow differentiates the raw material. The outside of the melon is covered with a tough green layer. Next, a layer of white. Within the white, a core layer of red and scattered throughout the red are the seeds of black, each one of them again capable of reproducing itself and creating another watermelon. Do you think all this just happened? Did God not have a plan even for watermelons? It's incredible. It just blows your mind when you begin to think about the architect of this universe, Almighty God. And people want to tell me it just happened a big boom one day. Come on, man, you need to leave your brain to the Smithsonian if you believe that stuff. That's not, that, that can't be. Just, just a simple watermelon, one of the most complex of all things. God has a plan for the mineral kingdom. You take sodium and mix it with chlorine, both of which are extremely poisonous. You put them together and you have sodium chloride, better known as table salt. Isn't that amazing? Two extremely poisonous agents. God has a plan. Oxygen and hydrogen are odorless, tasteless, and colorless gases. When they combine with carbon, which is a black, tasteless substance, you have sweet white sugar, oxygen, hydrogen, and carbon. None of them are white, and none of them have any taste. But when they go together, we have sugar. God's marvelous creation in his plan. God even has a plan for time. This universe is so precisely designed. The Naval Observatory has the best device ever created for determining time by viewing the stars. And occasionally... It gets off a microsecond, this very, very sophisticated device. When it does, they don't say, something's wrong with the stars. They adjust the device because they know God has a plan, that everything that God has done, as Psalm 1830 has said, as for God his ways are perfect. Boy, and that, that just thrills me when I think about things like this. And all we're barraged by this uh, evolutionary theory and this humanistic philosophy constantly, and we fight back and try to teach our kids a biblical worldview. And here is just tremendous evidence and illustration that God designed this. And it's also different, like the horse getting up one way, the cow another, the elephant leaning forward and looks like he's out of balance. Why doesn't gravity pull him down? Well, because God had a plan. God designed him exactly that way. Now, having said all of that, I spent most of last fall teaching and preaching on what 
we call the Acts 2 church. The Acts 2 church. And I tried to create a vision in this church, a fresh new vision, that the Acts 2 church is the kind of church we want to be. There are all kinds of churches in America. About 350,000 different churches in the United States this morning. And they're all different sizes and kinds and philosophies and so on. 350,000. But I know the kind of church that God wants us to be from reading my Bible. Because I believe God has a plan for his church just like he had a plan for the sun, the moon, the stars, the animal kingdom, the plant kingdom, the mineral kingdom, and so on. God has a plan for his church. And I spent all the fall emphasizing that. In fact, I tried to identify five major characteristics, and I preached at least once on each of these characteristics, casting a vision that this is the kind of church I trust that, first of all, we've always tried to be and that we will be going forward in the future. And the five characteristics of an Acts 2 church, let me just briefly remind you of them. First of all, they, had, they were a church with a great big vision. They thought big. They made big plans. They did big things. They were not a bunch of little thinkers who were just concerned about themselves and three or four more. This vision was so big that they had a dream of taking the gospel to the whole world and sharing it with every living creature on the planet. This was the Acts 2 church's vision. Secondly, they prayed. Prayer was their priority. They were always and forever having prayer meetings. They prayed individually, personally. They prayed, um, they prayed together cooperatively as a church group. They prayed at night, all night sometimes. They prayed during the day. They prayed everywhere they went. Prayer was obviously their priority because they knew that prayer connected them to God and that they could not operate to please the Lord unless they were submitted to the Lord through their prayer. Thirdly, they witnessed. Witnessing was a daily activity in the Acts 2 church. It was not a church program that met on a Monday night or Tuesday night. It was not a course that they taught in evangelism somewhere. It was literally a way of life. It was their daily activity that they did anything and everything. They used every method available to get the gospel to every single person that they could, knowing that you cannot give the gospel to the wrong person. Number four, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. That was characteristic of that church. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled means meaning that they were controlled by the Holy Spirit. They willingly submitted themselves to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, which we believe indwells every single believer. And so they lived under the power and in the influence of the Holy Spirit. It was the, the Spirit was the source of their power. And number five, their mission was that they were working always to make disciples, to take people who were lost and without Christ, to lead them to saving faith in Christ, and then to train them and nurture them and direct them and guide them and lead them and teach them so that these people would gain full Christian mature, maturity throughout their life and that they would be effective in reaching the world for Jesus Christ. So 
I spent most of the fall preaching on that, and that's just a brief review of it. There's the characteristics, as I defined it, of an Acts 2 church, which I hope you've got by now, gotten by now. Now, let me ask you a question. Look up here. I want you to get it. I took you through all those illustrations about the sun, the moon, the stars, the earth, the plant kingdom, the animal kingdom, the mineral kingdom, time, and on and on and on. I tried to illustrate in every possible way that I could think of that God has a plan that this universe is not just operating randomly. Now, If God is that concerned about everything else, do you think he has a plan for financing his church? Do you think that he just said to the church, well, that's fine, we got a plan for everything else, but I'll tell you what, you're on your own, just do whatever you feel led. Now, if I went to many churches today, that's what I would think because there's never a defined specific plan for how God is gonna finance his worldwide mission program that he has, beginning here in our Jerusalem, Florence, South Carolina, and extending out across the whole world. I, I can't do everything every time, and I wish I could do more every time, because just a week or so ago, I gave the church, but it's a Sunday evening service, I gave a listing of all the things the church did last year. And through your tithes and offerings, you gave a little bit over $4 million to this church through in, in the 2016 year. We gave away $451,000 in various mission projects, both locally and around the entire world. And we did so many projects. I don't have time to enumerate them and tell you about them. Things like helping somebody buy a house, helping a family get their visas so they could permanently enter a country. Just that one thing cost them $13,000. We bought cars for missionaries so they would have transportation. We bought tickets so we could bring them home in various needs that they might have in their life. We purchased literature that was sound doctrinal Christian literature so that they would have Bibles and Christian literature to give away because that is so critical in missionary work. And of course, we supported them, just gave them money to live on to 65 different missionary families. And we do that every month, every single month, we give about 20 some thousand dollars just to finance their living expenses where they are living overseas and so on. And, and, and so we're involved in this great plan of God to take the gospel to the whole world and to every creature. To do that, though, we have to stay strong here. If we were not a strong church, we we couldn't be financing projects all over the world and 60-some different uh, families that we're supporting. And so if we were not strong enough financially, the stronger we are here at home, more we'll be able to do worldwide in this great venture that Jesus Christ assigned to his disciples. And so every year we have this chest of Joash day. And I want to tell you, God has a plan for the church's finances that's just as detailed as his plan for the planets and the earth because almighty God left nothing to chance. God has a plan and his ways are perfect. 
Now, let me show you that plan real quickly this morning in your Bible. It's in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter number 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Now, I was talking about the Acts 2 church. Well, does the book of Acts say anything about financing the church? It does, but it doesn't give the long-term plan that I'm referring to this morning. And here's what I mean by that. That when they started the church in the book of Acts, you know what they did? The, the people, some of them were destitute and poor. People had lost everything because when they followed Christ then, it was costly to them. They paid a price for following Christ. They might lose their occupation, their profession, their ability to earn a living. And the people so loved each other, they just jumped in there and helped each other out. In fact, in the book of Acts in chapter two, it says, people sold their very possessions and gave it to their brothers and sisters in the church in order to help them because these people had, had become poor because they had received Christ and they'd lost their means of their livelihood. Isn't that amazing? I, I wonder how many Americans today would follow the Lord Jesus Christ if they knew the moment that you trusted Christ, you're going to lose your, your means of making a living. But they also knew that the people over there at the church cared enough about them and had their back that loved them enough that we would even sell our possessions to help them out. That's the spirit of New Testament Christianity. But that was not a permanent instruction on how they were to finance the church. That was a temporary thing that they did because this was the startup period. This is the pioneer period of the, of the local church. We find that there's a man there in the church who's a wealthy man and he owns a lot of land. His name is Barnabas. He ultimately becomes one of the, uh, one of the apostles even. He's Paul's partner in ministry. And he had land over in the island of Cyprus. He didn't live there anymore. Probably he inherited it. We don't know where he got it. But he took that inherited land and sold it and brought all the money and laid it at the foot of the apostles or put it in the collection plate, we would say. In other words, he cared so much about the Lord's work thriving and being blessed that he sold his inheritance and gave it all to the Lord's work. Now, the Lord doesn't require that of every Christian. I don't know what he will say to you and to your heart. He might want you to take your inheritance and give it to the Lord's work somewhere. I don't know what he wants. I don't presume to tell you what God wants for every single person. But I do know what his plan is for his church. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, it talks about the resurrection. Chapter 15 is the greatest chapter in the Bible on the resurrection. Now, I'm, I'm certainly not a Greek scholar, but I've looked at some of those Greek manuscripts. They call them codexes. The Greek manuscripts, in my Bible, I have space. For example, the verses are numbered. And I come down there, like in your Bible, there's a little space here between chapter 15 and 16, right? You understand? You with me? A little space right here between that. Because the Bible has been laid out through the centuries for our convenience. But when I look at one of those manuscripts, those ancient manuscripts, there's no spaces. There are no verses. 
There are no spaces even between the words. Think about reading your Bible and there's no space between the words because they were writing on this, these skins of animals and they didn't want to waste the space. So when you look at those manuscripts, it's just solid letters. One after another, there's no punctuation. There is no space between the letters. There's no space after the verses and chapters. There are no, there are no verse markings. It doesn't say verse one and two and three. It just all run together and there's no chapters. They added the chapters to the Bible back in the 13, 14, 1500. Just one big long maze of letters and you had to figure out, you had to read slowly and think it through. Why, what am I telling you that for? Because up here in chapter 15 is the most glorious doctrinal teaching, perhaps in all the Bible, some of it. But now I get to chapter 16, no space. He just abruptly changes and goes right into giving. Because in the mind of the Lord, our doctrine, what we believe, is also mingled and a part of what we practice. So God says, now here's what we believe about the resurrection. Here's great hope for you. Now here's, here's what I want you to do to finance getting this story and this doctrine out around the world. And in verse one, he says, now concerning the collection for the saints, and he was taking up a special offering here, but the principles apply as I have given order to the churches, plural, the churches of Galatia. So he was teaching this everywhere to all the New Testament churches. This was not just for one church. He said, upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God has prospered him, that there be no gatherings or no collection, no offerings when I come. I want you to notice four things about that verse, verse two there before we conclude today because this is God's plan. If God had such a detail for plan for everything in the universe, did God not have a plan for financing his kingdom work on this earth? Answer, yes, big time, obviously. What's the plan? Number one, if you wanna write down these four things in, there in the margin of your Bible, it's a periodic plan. On the first day of the week, it's periodic every week. The, the week is the period there. Every week, God said, I want you to bring a tithe and an offering. Now, that's because worship changed from the seventh day after Christ died until the, to the first day of the week here. The resurrection was on the first day which gave great significance. See, the old Sabbath day in the Old Testament represented God resting from his creation work, making all those stars and everything. But now in the New Testament, Christ coming put an end to that Old Testament order and established a new covenant. We call it the New Testament, the new agreement that God has with his people. And the people began to worship then on the day of the resurrection. The resurrection was so significant. Then Pentecost happened on the first day of the week to reaffirm the change. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, the church at Troas broke bread on the first day of the week. 
In Revelation 1.10, John saw Jesus on the first day of the week. All the way through, all the significant events after the resurrection happened on the first day of the week. God is saying, okay, now we're going to change this. So the churches, all the churches adopted the first day of the week as their day of worship as we're doing right now. Now, where do you go then on the first day of the week? Well, you go to church. Wherever you go on the first day of the week, he said, that's where you're supposed to give your offering. It's periodic. Give it on a weekly basis as much as possible. Now, two, I want you to write down a second word that begins with a P. God's plan for financing his church, periodic on the first day of the week. Secondly, personal. Every one of you, it's a personal thing. It's not just a generalized idea, but it's every one of us personally are to participate. And if you don't have much and you don't, you don't have to give beyond your means. But some of us, God have blessed us so much, we can not only pay the Lord his tithe, we can give him a lot more than that and still live better than most of the people in the world. In fact, it's very difficult for us to even think about sacrificing in the United States. The third word there is planned, planned. Lay by him in store. And what does that mean? That you plan your giving, that you make a budget, if you will. You live from a budget. You don't live haphazardly and randomly. You plan, and laying in store has the idea of during the week, you're keeping back the money that belongs to the Lord. You're laying it up for holy purposes, for spiritual purposes, if you will. The inference here is that the church is a storehouse, which the Old Testament referred to a part of the temple as being the storehouse where they kept resources. Well, the New Testament church is called the storehouse, the place where resources are brought to carry out the work of evangelizing the world and carrying out the Great Commission. And lastly, the fourth P there you can put is it's proportionate as God has prospered him. It's proportionate. And so God has a fair way of asking you to finance his church and his kingdom. And what is the fair way? It is you give as God has prospered you. Now, what is the proportion? You know, there's this, been this debate for many years about is tithing for the New Testament or was it just for the Old Testament? And though the Bible doesn't, in, in this particular passage, he doesn't come out and say, now, you've got to tithe 10% to the penny. But here's, here's what you do have to understand. Last Sunday night, I spoke to you about the first tither in the Bible, a man named Abraham. 400 years before Moses ever lived and put into the law that we are to tithe, Abraham lived. More than 400 years, in fact. And so Abraham was a tither. It said when God blessed him, that he took of what God blessed him and he gave a tenth of it to the man Melchizedek who represented the Lord Jesus Christ. So Abraham tithed before there was any law. Should we tithe after the law has been abrogated and no longer applies in that, in, in, in that way? Later, there's a fellow named Jacob. God blessed him. He lay one night under the stars and looked up into those stars I described a few moments ago. He said, God, you're so great. 
I'm going to give you a tenth of what I have the rest of my life. He was a tither. Along comes Moses, goes up in the mountain. Sinai comes down with the Ten Commandments and tells the people, the Lord expects you people in Israel to give him a tenth to tithe. And then Jesus, hundreds of years later, Jesus Christ tithed. Did you know that? You say, where do you get that in the Bible? It said that Jesus fulfilled every single jot and tittle of the law. Jesus Christ was a poor man, but he was a tither. He saw the Pharisees tithing. He never said one good word about the Pharisees until that day. And then what did he say? He said, this you ought to have done. This you ought to have done. He commended them for their being so precise about paying their tithes. And then now I come down here to Paul, and he said, every week you give as you've been prospered. So here's the question I ponder. Hmm. What percentage should I give the Lord that is appropriate if it's not a tithe? If I really believe in the Great Commission, if I really believe in God building up the work of God and knowing that it has to be financed, do I give him 1%, 2%, What's the pr- proportion? Since the Bible doesn't presume to give any other figure, I'll just stick with what the Bible says. I'll give him my tithe. And then because I'm so blessed, I'm going to give him a little more than that. And many of you do. You give so generously. You dig down deep and give. Or this church would not have the income stream that it does. And we wouldn't be able to do what we do. If God had a detailed plan for every single thing in the universe, the planets, the earth, the minerals, the animals, the insects, (laughs) every single part of it is all planned how watermelons grow. Do you not think that God has a plan for financing his church? And right here it is. Now, here's the way we do it at our church. Well, let me just say one other thing, though. Because I've left out a very big and important thing, that is, God not only, there's one other thing I want to emphasize on the plan. God had one plan for salvation. God had one plan for salvation. And he sent his only begotten son because he loved us to die on the cross for our sins. The gospel is not about what you do for God. What you do for God has nothing to do with your salvation. Giving money has nothing to do for your salvation. You can't buy your way into heaven. The gospel is what Christ has done for you. Stop and think about that for a moment. The gospel is not about what we do for him. The gospel is about what he did for us when he went to the cross. And he did it all. God's perfect plan. He did it all. And his blood is adequate to forgive us of every single sin we've ever committed. 
The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all, A-double-L-all, sin. And when you put your faith in Christ, then God takes you into his family, forgives you of your sins, and gives you the gift of eternal life. He has a plan on that too. So I'd like for you to stand with me, if you will, for a moment with your heads bowed.